You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. April 11th, 1995, we're in um, Atlanta, Georgia, at the APEE 20th International Convention. That's the Association of Private Enterprise Educators. And uh, this next presentation is by Candace Allen from the Pueblo School in, uh, of the Arts in uh, Pueblo, Colorado, and uh, Marshall Fritz with the uh, Separation of School and State Alliance in Fresno. Who presented today on the subject of the education of the state? Candace Allen, who's going to talk about a charter school report card, has special expertise, which is a teacher at a charter school. Uh, and Marshall Fritz talking about separation of school and state. Again, special expertise since he's uh, with the Alliance of Separation of School and State. We're going to take them in the order that they're on the program. Candace? Thank you. <clears throat> I told someone, a friend recently, that, that the only thing that should be read is a story that I'm going to be reading some today because um, in a way I have a story to tell and that um, I became uh, interested in the charter school about three years ago, first hearing of the concept. Colorado was one of the first three states to begin uh, legislation moving towards charter schools. Uh, there are now 11 states, incidentally, that have charter school legislation. And Colorado has perhaps the most um, um, has the best chance of, of simulating market conditions of any of the charter school laws and that it gives they, the law gives more autonomy or the, seems to be at this point the, the maximum amount of autonomy that that uh, legislatures will allow uh, so I, I got it I became very interested in, in that I've taught 20 for 22 years now in a public school and have have seen the inadequacies of the system and quite frankly at times I'm quite set up and thought well this is this is my chance and I left a pretty good niche where I was in the in the system and then I had all of the uh, advanced placement economics and psychology classes and I I taught a couple of uh, what are considered regular classes and um, had pretty much things the way I liked I had the sponsored the good clubs and the uh, you know, after a while, you've, you've been around a while, and you, you kind of move up in the little seniority system, and whether you're good or not, you end up uh, having the cushy things, the little perks. So when I left that, um, I was giving up quite a lot, because I loved my advanced placement economics classes, and uh, felt that I was accomplishing a lot, and so opportunity cost was, was, was high. Um, but I thought it would be worth a try. I teach in a, in a school that is K... Uh, K-12, we have K-10 now, and my main goal there was to um, be an autonomous, empowered person and uh, fix what I saw as wrong in the educational system. 
market solutions are, uh, as a means of reform in education, speak to a, to a growing number of folks out there. And I'm truly a reformer. And so the, the, the charter school movement made me think that, indeed, we could compete with public schools and we could do better. And this would be the intermediate link from public school to, to the to true market. Um, I will tell you today why people are in favor of charter schools and, and why they think that constraints can be washed clean from charter schools, but I'm going to contend today that this is, an, this is only a cleansing or a cosmetic and that reformers should be very skeptical about the workability of anything short of complete privatization of, public education, of, of the public education system. <clears throat> The real issue is, I think, is or one of the main issues is not how the laws are structured. At first, I thought it was. I thought that that because laws can be structured in different ways, one can be used to attempt change within the present system. That would mean that those holding the charter are the school boards themselves. Or I thought you could structure law as Colorado is structured so that the laws could challenge the framework of state law that governs the um, behavior of school districts. But I don't, I don't think it matters anymore. I don't think that that's, except for marginal improvement that any given school could make. Because, you know, you get pockets of people together and they do great things and you'll have some marginal improvement, but only under the most favorable circumstances. Some of the folks at our school are saying, well, if we just didn't have the particular principle we have right now, maybe that would make things better. Maybe if we just had the right people. And right now the folks in, in our community that are looking at the school and saying, well, it's not really quite going as we thought, they're saying, but you know, it's, it's the leadership there. They've got those teachers, but it's that leadership. We change the leadership, again, looking for people solutions rather than systemic solutions. So I don't think, based on what I say today, that, that charter schools will improve student achievement in the aggregate. Now, why do people like charter schools? I mean, what are, what are proponents thinking? Well, they recognize the correlation between family choice of schools and improvement in student achievement. And I say correlation because I'm, I'm not going to say causation, but there's a connection. In theory, at least, they recognize that the power structure must shift from the government to the parents. They compare charter schools to private schools as an example of consumer-driven education. And, they, and the reason why is because they want to offer greater choice. And at the same time, they want to give democratically administered, um, uh, they want to pr pr uh, provide democratically administered schools. Assuming that a democratically administered school where all the folks gather and make decisions themselves will be the type of school that would succeed in the market bringing kids uh, higher student achievement. Now that's, that's, what's, that's what's assumed. I assumed it. I assumed it. But being in a system where all of us are empowered and we, we get to do whatever we want, um, isn't necessarily going to bring student achievement. Uh, it's thought that the charter school folks think that it's a continuation, we're going to continue the non-discriminatory selection of students, that is we can't exclude students from charter schools because we're public schools. And at the same time, if we continue that and, and then we have autonomy and governance, then we're going to have decentralization while maintaining integration of children of all abilities and from all walks of life. And it sounds great. Um, because enrollment is voluntary, the schools have to be designed to attract customers, and this is supposed to bring in competition, and charter schools are hoped, of course, to be more accountable for, for parents can vote with their feet. They can get up and leave if they don't like it. And charter school folks are looking now, seeking evidence to, to prove that uh, 
this introduction to, of market concepts can add pressure to the entire system to improve. And that this was enough for me to change my uh, job in a public school, um, success with all my advanced placement students and sending them off to the best colleges, et cetera. This was enough, this belief was enough to make me change what I'd done for 22 years. At my school, almost everyone is passionately in, believes that our charter school is not entirely, it, it isn't entirely market governed, but at least it can offer a salad of market characteristics that simulate the taste, at least, of a real market. But I've come to realize that now it's to be fairly obvious that a public school is a public school. <laughs> That's it. Just because a list of free market vocabulary words can be applied to the situation at a school, and we've applied the list. We've got a competition. We've got choice. You, you apply this vocabulary list, but it doesn't mean that the grammar and the syntax of the market are present. Now, my charter school is not short of the really fine teachers, and, and I think administrators. And so the paper itself is not a reflection of the quality of the staff at the school. I've never worked with a group of more well-meaning, good-intentioned, hard-working folks, but something is wrong. And I think that the evidence points to the fact that charter schools are allowed and experimental uh, within the public school monopoly. Now, there's three, these three flaws I want to bring up today, three flaws in the structure of charter schools that will keep even the best of schools, even my school, if it's really, really good, from causing any serious dents in the present educational system. But underlying these, these uh, flaws is, is one big uh, problem, and that's the attitude of compliance uh, to the familiar state-run education. And it's, most of you probably have kids, and so, so if you, just for a second, think about Think of your kids and think of a time you went into the school to confront a problem. You had to enter the system in some way. It might be a teacher phone call or a visit to the principal or a meeting or whatever. And think of how you were treated. What happened? Another time, I go around the room and, and, and share. I'd hope to make this an interactive uh, session more so than I am, but um, I realize I'm discussing with folks that really, seriously, most folks, uh, and I thought all the economists would just be totally up on charter schools and know all the issues, but I've come to find out that you're busy with other, uh, other, other things, and so um, I, I won't go around asking your opinion, but you've gone through the exercise, and I think what, and I'm just guessing, and if I'm wrong, you tell me. But I bet you went into the public school very somewhat worried, okay, now we mustn't offend the teacher, and I have to say this carefully, and, and you approached the, uh, a person delicately because you knew who really called the shots. You know who calls the shots there, and you know if you're not careful, your kid might get the wrong end of the deal. And that's the way it is. So the attitude of compliance is in you and me, and it's it's the same as this acceptance of the way things are. I don't think is I think it's what plagues market plagues market reforms in Soviet Union and, the, and former Eastern European nations uh, and other nations in transition. And it, just like in these countries, reforming the bureaucracy, the, the bureaucratized system, whatever it is, in this case public education, means that the political power structure has to be changed, and this is more difficult if that power structure has been accepted for some time. 
And it has. It's been accepted for some time. Imagine school without thinking of public school. It's really hard to do. And, and we have a visiting teacher from China right now. In fact, as we speak today, he's covering my classes, and he's teaching them that China now has a market system. That is what he's teaching them. And I asked him why, and, and this is just a recent insert into my paper. He told me that China now has a market economy because the government has decided that the people now can handle more responsibility. Now, this is much the stance that parents take when they're invited to participate in public education. The gradual uh, bureaucratization of educational practices in the United States has changed our reliance on the family's responsibility to educate its young to the general reliance on the state to bring compulsory education to all young people. And this attitude is not overt, it's covert, because most of us think that we want change. In a recent conversation with a fifth grade parent, I discovered that her daughter's teacher, and this little girl is so bright, she could out-talk any of us. She, this, but, the, but the parent is, 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 is reticent. The daughter's teacher would not allow her daughter to be moved into the algebra class because she'd missed too much school. Even though the youngster's latest report card has all A's, and even though the parent and the student want to try more challenging math curriculum, the parent in, or the teacher in our charter school will not allow it, and thus the administration supports it. The parent hadn't considered that she has a right to challenge the decision, and when I, I said to her, what do you think your role in this is, she really paused and she stumbled and she said, I didn't think I had a role. Last week I talked to the teacher who had just finished coordinating the school's books there, and I asked her if parents had been involved. Because you know, our organization has to run on parent volunteers. We don't have any aides. We don't have any uh, uh, folks to help us uh, with any kind of extracurricular activities. We never hired those folks. We have to take an, we only get 80% of what the state gives us for the children's education because the school the law says that each district has to give you at least 80%, so our school district gave us 80% and kept the other 20. Um, and that's the way it is, and I could tell you why, but you would laugh. But this, this, we found out that no parents had been involved, and they, they'd either already contributed their hours. To get into the school, you have to sign a contract to say you will spend 18 hours in school with your volunteering. So we couldn't get anybody to run the book there because they'd already contributed their 18 hours, or they were too busy to do so now. There was a parent that came in, and, she, and uh, the teacher pointed her out to me, and she said, that parent right there, work today. But the only reason she did was because I called her and hounded her and hounded her and hounded her and I, and I asked her, she said, why she only would work in her other child's Head Start school. And the response was because in Head Start school, which is a federally funded school, she earned, a volunteer, she earned volunteer bucks. And these bucks are redeemable at local home supplies warehouses. There's two of them. And just like many other parents, I would contend that this parent saw little relationship to volunteering, which is really mandatory to her child's uh, having a say in a child's education. So in our charter school, we say, we want the parents involved, but what we really want is for them to staple for us and, and, and carry out the things that we need done. Now, in another discussion at a recent faculty meeting, the teachers were confused about the increasing lack of, of interest by parents to serve the volunteer hours. After all, aren't they concerned with their children's education? And one of the teachers said, and I quote, actually in conversation, what, will we, what can we do to force them to do what they are supposed to do for us, end quote. 
Now, parents and teachers, and of course, almost everyone else, we have not seriously challenged the paradigm that those who know best for children are parents. And we, we haven't challenged the paradigm that they're the representatives of the school. They should be parents, but we, we haven't challenged it seriously. The attitude that schools are responsible for what your kids get permeates the way we view our roles as teachers and as parents, and the way we view change and reform. Most basically, it's an internal, invisible, and insidious attack on the dignity and integrity of the family. Now, the way this plays out in all schools, including the uh, charter school, is that there's no systematic reason why parents are going to get anything other than what the system gives them. And this fact is justified by the rhetoric that public schools must serve, get this, must serve the interests of a variety of students. Yes, you can have your input, of course, of course, but we will consider what you say since we are the professionals and we will disregard what is necessary for the good of all. And parents have come to accept this and they've come to accept that their opinions at best will be only weighed and it should not be surprising that parents aren't as closely involved in their children's education as they would be if their direct dollars went into a specific chosen school and if because of that payment they knew they had more responsibility than to monitor their kids' homework, to make their children go to school on time, or to put in a number of required volunteer hours. Okay, now, that's the underlying attitude. Okay, now the first major flaw is that you cannot think that a charter school can be free of constraints to the public of a, of a public school if you continue to think that the funding can still come from the state. Now, my charter school t uh, claims to be sem semi-autonomous, and any school, I would say, that is financed by taxing people who may or may not have children in school and is attended by students who are compelled by law to be there is not autonomous. Also, all public schools are regulated by different forms of government with different levels. Oh, I can't tell you how much regulation there is. And although charter schools can apply for waivers, and we have, for example, we allow non-certified teachers to teach, like, for example, Mr. Moe today is teaching my classes. I really do wish I were there hearing him, too. I'd like to know what he's saying. Um, but most regulations cannot be waived. For example, we can't waive the fact that you cannot just tell a child he may not come to school because he's not doing his work. And I'm going to show an interesting part about my school. When it was first come for serve, and so all kinds of folks stayed out all night, made the newspapers all across the state, and, and some, I understand the nation, people camping out to get into this charter school. Well, guess who was there? On the upper levels, in the areas that I teach, 90% of the children did not want to come to that school, but it was their last hope from their parents. See, we hoped to get kids that wanted to come to school and really learn. That's what we thought we were going to get. But we didn't. We got all the kids that failed in the other system because of one reason or another. Lots of reasons. Lots of reasons. A variety. But the parents are saying, now our kid's going to get the education he finally needs in a charter school. Um, okay, so we've got regulations. And one of the things we can't do is just let, if your kid's not doing his homework, and believe me, they're not doing their homework, uh, we can't say you can't stay here. We, we have to keep them. We cannot suspend them. We, we, we cannot. So here's another example of a, of a regulation. All public schools are required to apply state curriculum standards, and the regulations that have bound schools to micromanagement by higher authorities still exist 
for a large to a large degree. And local boards retain discretionary power. In another uh, city in Colorado, another charter school, a sister's charter school, has been warned by the school board that if it doesn't clean up its immediate problems in specific ways within 30 days, this charter is going to be revoked. And rather than allow parental discretion in deciding shall we keep it open or shall we not, the main argument is there's no text being used. And the school board wants them to use text, so the uh, particular board is going to intervene and impose an arbitrary rule. And our own school has no issue with regulations. Are we doing our own regulations? Um, of our 15 faculty members, there are two, and I, I kind of skirted this in here because I couldn't quite say it, but there's two folks who really aren't doing the job. And many parents have voiced concern, serious concern. I have my own child in my charter school. I took him out of a private school to put him there, and he's falling behind in math. And it really makes me mad. My husband is a mathematics professor, and he has to work with Aaron every night on his homework because Aaron isn't getting math. And as a parent, it really makes me angry. And many parents are like me. Now, it's important to note how we were chosen. The dean of the school had five core teachers that helped among the organizing group of the school. And we, or I wasn't on that five. Those five chose all of the rest of us, okay, based on their preferences of us. So that just needs to be, to be noted. Now, we've been told under our charter, and I failed to mention that we're chartered with the University of Southern Colorado that we must follow due process and strictly adhere to due process. So we have to follow real lengthy procedures for dismissal, and it's just the same as in public schools. And I'm, I, I spoke quite a bit about, so we're not tied to a union because we decided not to be union, we didn't need it. We're doing the same things in our schools ourselves that the union did before for us. In other words, we're protecting ourselves. We're, we're saying that evaluations, which we must do, Self-evaluations, where we, where we plan goals for improvement and we find some way to measure whether parents are satisfied. We find some way to measure whether parents are satisfied. Then we develop an action plan around that. And we decide among ourselves if we're growing because, in quotes, I'm going to say this exactly, faculty evaluation must be non-threatening so that we can feel safe enough to change. Okay. This is true. Um, okay. I don't want to take all the time here. Um, oh, yes. Recently, at a recent faculty meeting, it was voted I, I didn't vote. I have to tell you. But we decided to vote for an environment uh, to promote trust and cohesiveness among ourselves and to avoid confrontation so that we can all get along. Now, tax dollars are used for education. Uh, they're, they're, they're diffused and they're not specifically earmarked. And no one can know exactly how sure, uh, you can't know how much of your taxes exactly are used for, for education. And you as a family cannot guess at the cost, and it would be too much trouble for any one of you or for a group to try to go into all the, 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 the different fundings and figure out how much is going for each school and what's going to what's going to what. And there's no incentive to do that. And if a, if a small group of parents or one parent came into my school and said they didn't want your, they didn't want their kids to be a part of, uh, we have to tell that, I'm okay, I think. Am I okay? I don't want to squeeze you out here. If, if they said, you know, we don't want our kids to have this multi-age curriculum that you got down here at the charter school. I'm going to talk to my son now because I'm practicing because I've been down here for a while. <laughs> you, we don't want this multi-age stuff because in our school, you see, we bought into some philosophy that was already out there. So I, I didn't think about this well enough, and I, I don't know if I could have thought about it well enough without doing it. 
have you ever wondered what multi-age curriculum is, an interdisciplinary curriculum is? It's a really new thing, and, and the third graders are being taught by the fifth graders, and the fifth graders are supposed to really care about the third graders. And actually, I don't know if you know this, but third graders and fifth graders don't get along, basically. And they actually don't like each other. And if you think a fifth grader is going to be caught bad teaching a third grader, I mean, sometimes it works out and it's kind of cute. And whenever it's happening, we take pictures of it. <laughs> and we send it to the newspaper, third graders at the charter school learning. And sometimes the high school kids go down and teach them too, and they, they, they kind of think that's great, but not because of the reason you think, it's because they're getting out of class. Out of their interdisciplinary class, where science is blended with social studies, which is blended with math, which is blended with English, and I hate to say it, but when you do that, your disciplines lose integrity. And that is the way it is. My discipline is losing integrity. And that, that includes the, the history that I teach and the economics that I teach. And I think economics can be integrated into, into classes. I really do. But you have to be very careful. And I think if you try to do it every day, there's not enough time to do this. Okay, I teach eight classes a day. I have four preparations a day. I go to the meetings because I'm the empowerer. I make the decisions at the school. I involve myself. And one thing you will learn real easy, you can't do everything well. It's impossible. Um, getting back to the parents, a small group of parents who want to come into the school and say, we find this undesirable. We don't like this multi-age stuff. Our, third gra our fifth grader's not learning anything because they're in the same grade as a third grader. See, <laughs> everybody always thinks about the other way that fifth grader's going to help third graders and that makes them smart. That makes them smart in what they already knew. They're not learning a lot more. But if, sent, if they come in, they're sent away with this. And you might have imagined this when you were thinking about your public school experience when you go in with your kid. They're pacified. Now, give this time. This is a new concept, and the research is showing that people are really satisfied with this, and just give us time, and we'll work it out. And check back if you're still unsatisfied later on, because we're really going to try to meet your needs. But it's not going to work, because we're not going to check back. Now, because taxpayers pay different unknown amounts for education that goes into these different and diffused and pooled funds, and because suppliers of education have no need to respond to the parents as payers, there's no need. People have to act as if education is free. And when you do, you tend to value it less than you were, than you would if you were directly providing it for your family, just as you would other necessities, and you don't demand or expect consumer preference, you don't demand it, nor do you expect it, as, as mentioned before, you leave the major decisions to the educational bureaucracy. Um, teachers, on the other hand, providers expect to be in charge. In the public school, these decisions might be administrated by a, a, a principal, or they might be administered by this collective group of empowered folks. It doesn't matter. Compulsory taxation creates a definite attitude in administrators and staff that is not found in the business world. Even if total quality management were used in every school and parents were considered customers, the providers still are going to make the final decisions. They control the source of money that, uh, and power that a business owner could never hope to fund. Now, because of their source of funding, public schools, charter schools included, are really a package deal. Because if a family sends its kid to a charter school because it likes the interdisciplinary uh, the approach, but hates the math teacher, the social studies teacher, and wants to send its kid to another school for that part of the curriculum, the chances are very slim that the family's desires are going to be met because rules will soon develop, and they have in our case, where kids, parents want to have their kid at our, at our school part of the time, but they want to have them somewhere else the rest of the time, and they're not allowed to do that, and we've developed the rules to not allow it. Why? Because we lose the state money that comes for them, and so we make rules that permit that that inhibits the flexibility. Okay, the second two um, slides are going to go a little faster. So the first one is the tax money is tied 
to the school, and as long as that's the case, for the various reasons I've given you, you're going to see problems. Now, the second law um, affects the charter schools as much as any other. Although charter schools are supposedly held accountable for the results, the results are going to be compared to those of other public schools. And because there's a wide array of achievement scores that exist within districts, a charter school may claim discrimination, for example, if it's not allowed to continue as a school by another school with lower, if another school with lower scores is allowed to maintain its presence. And what that means is you say, well, you, you can stop a charter school from being a charter school by simply saying, well, your scores aren't high enough. But there's always going to be scores in other schools that are lower. And you can't do that. It won't work. And you can't just say, well, we're going to close the charter school, and yet Bradford School over here is doing worse than we're doing. So the, the, you see, because they're public schools, they're not going to be any more accountable in that sense. I have another accountability issue. It's not going to go there with charter schools. Um, and that's a teacher accountability. And I, insinuate, I hinted at it a little while earlier about the hiring practices or the firing practices. Ironically, the restrictions and the regulations that, we, that are placed on charter schools lessen the recognition or effects of failure. Because our local school district and the university which holds the charter have forged an official alliance or pledged support for K-16, both of them, both of us, the, the, the charter school and the university, benefit by any claim to success we make, and it's in both of the interests to help us prevent failure or the public admission of it. For example, it can happen in several ways. Both entities, the charter school and university, could step in and announce their assistance with any difficulty, oh, I'm sorry, the, the school district. Um, they could step in and announce their assistance with, any, assistance with any difficulty, promising updates on pressing issues, and all the while covering up or band-aiding deeper issues. They could hide highlight isolated programs or policies that are working well, and then downplay complaints. They could subsidize and thus prop up or build programs or policies that show off the charter school and appropriately advertise the new, all, we've got all the new educationally correct programs using the latest educational jargon. And the faculty, in the meantime, would be distracted from the real issues that they don't know what the parents want, and they don't know uh, whether what what they don't care if the achievement is anything beyond status quo. I mean, they say they do, but in the actions, it doesn't matter. And yet, because schools offer package deals, and because parents have accepted that, the staff would make some change or another, and then publicize it as being good for the many, so that the goal of maintaining would be met. And um, these scenarios could happen because teachers' own incomes are not affected. Here's the here's the last thing on this point. Most teachers at my school have been employed by our school district or the neighboring one, and we have our positions guaranteed us should, and our salary should we want to return. So if, if my salary were determined, that were determined on whether or not my school succeeded, and if that were my job, that was it. I was hired to do that, and that was it. I might be acting differently in, at the marginal moment than, than I do. Uh, charter school teachers have job security if they fail. <coughs> So the charter school teachers um, claim to be on the cutting edge of reform, but their family's dinner of, of, uh, uh, isn't dependent upon it. The real risk of failure of having to face unintended negative consequences of actions and to make necessary changes in the attempt to be successful in the marketplace, so necessary in the real world of business and entrepreneurial venture, is not an issue for charter school teachers. It just isn't. Now the last flaw, and this is very short. The third flaw in the charter school arrangement is related to the above issues. 
Lack of accountability and constraints due to tax-generated funding have led to the unintended arrogance on the part of public education providers that they somehow know what will lead to successful performance of all U.S. students. An increasing number of people believe that public education is dying uh, long slow death. As more and more private schools find ways to crack open the state-run educational monopoly and offer educational substitutes, a new set of players are entering, entering the scene. Schools that operate for profit will begin to challenge public schools and not-for-profit schools. As they do, what they offer might look very different from what the educators saw as, edu as educationally correct way of arriving at student success. In other words, as new for-profit schools enter the market, with most failing and some succeeding, new methods of educating children will emerge. The successful school may or may not be multi-aged, interdisciplinary, standards-based, etc. The faculty may or may not be democratically involved in site-based decision-making, which is real big, which is where we make all our decisions, and may or may not be restricted to classroom teaching only. It's going to depend on the market. Now, on, how, am I, how am I doing? On, I don't want to... One minute. Oh, one minute. Okay, let me, let me make one more point. I don't... Okay, here it is. This, I'm going to make this point. Um, at my school, the teachers believe that most all decisions must be reached by consensus. We're the jacks of all trades, taking on such administrative tasks as scheduling. We write the curriculum. We design all the policies. In other words, we are empowered, and that is the problem. You see, when you have empowerment with the connection with the same funding and the other thing I mentioned, what you've got is you freed us up to have a tighter stranglehold on things. Um, empowerment, empowerment to do what? And for what? For rewriting unworkable schedules or curriculum that has no long-run benefit? I'll leave it at that. I've got more of it. <laughs> Thank you. Sorry it took so long. Well, I didn't like talking so much, I just want to keep listening. Excuse <laughs> me, you can introduce me or am I going to... Marshall. Marshall. <laughs> man who needs no introduction. That's right. Self-introducer. <laughs> well, my name is Marshall Fritz, and I'd like to thank uh, Dwight Lee and David Gay and others for uh, allowing me in here. Uh, I feel like the um, excited new kid on the block. This is the, you know, and I knew big kids on the edgy block uh, prepared papers and read them at conferences, and uh, I'd never even been to a conference where papers were read, uh, much less thinking that I would ever, uh, you know, I am a high school graduate, I don't want to seem uh, too ignorant, but, um, but this is big stuff for this uh, new kid on the block. Um, and I'd like to, to start with a, a dedication, if you will, to three people, and there's been, there's been thousands, but three people that I'd specifically like to recognize for different reasons this morning. Uh, two in 1986 and one in 1990 affected my thoughts on education greatly. Um, let's see here. We'll do it in alphabetical order. That'll, that'll work. Many of you know Bob Anderson, who uh, was with the Foundation for Economic Education for many years. I had the opportunity of attending his, his uh, their um, one-week conference in 19, I think it was 86. And uh, Bob mentioned that usually uh, somewhere along the third or fourth day, there's many high school uh, teachers that attend these things, so somebody puts up his hand and says, uh, um, how are we going to fix public education? And now they've had four days now being in, immersed in free market, market. And Bob says, well, socialism doesn't work. That's one of the messages that we're saying this week. And the uh, public schools in America are socialism. I don't put any time into trying to fix something that can't work. Next question. <laughs> Bingo! 
saved me years of struggle of trying to figure out how to fix public schools, government-owned schools. Secondly, two people, uh, Alan, uh, Houston Jones and Alan Harrison, who in early 1990 uh, discussed with me a teaching concept that so excited me that uh, I decided to open a school. And this is a person who, who um, did not like school. Uh, decides in February of 19, April of 1990 that he is going to open a school that has the potential of creating a paradigm shift in K-12 education. That uh, if the government can't run a quality school, that means uh, someone else can, and, uh, and I set out to do that. Uh, so I want to thank uh, Houston Jones and Alan Harrison, should they ever hear this tape. I went on to discard those ideas, but they were the the, um, like a diesel needs a, sometimes a, uh, a glow plug to get it started, but then it runs without that glow plug. So they helped kickstart. And more like a Harley, they did the kick and got me uh, interested in education. And then lastly, I'd like to uh, mention someone who all of you know. He's here in the room. He's your president of APEE, Dwight Lee. And he wrote an article in the Freeman Magazine that was a... Uh, uh, quite an experience for me to read, because I was, uh, up until then, in, quite in favor of vouchers as a way to do uh, that. I think, Candace, you used to be in favor of vouchers. Yeah, I did. I was. Before you got in favor of charter schools. Right. Right. I, I gave up vouchers and then I gave up vouchers for Lent. Now she's giving up charter schools. And before I get up there, I'd like to read these two sentences out of the Freeman Magazine in 1986 by Dwight Lee sitting out here in the room. If the move to purely private schools begins to accelerate, the public school lobby can and surely will protect its privileged position by embracing educational vouchers. As strange as it will sound to advocates of educational vouchers, if the voucher approach to education ever becomes a serious political possibility, it will be as a means of reducing competition in education, not increasing it. And I did a 180-degree turn in 179 milliseconds. And I wish every time I was wrong, I could change my mind as fast as I did as I read those two sentences. So I thank you privately. I thank you in writing. Um, this is my first opportunity to thank you, Dwight Lee, for that. <sighs> Max Victor Bells, a grain dealer in Walker, Iowa, used to say, I don't want my children fed or clothed by the government. But if I had to choose, I would prefer that to their being educated by the government. The title of this presentation is Why Free Market People Should Favor the Separation of School and State, Why It's Necessary, How It's Possible. Let's go. A little abstract. America's elementary and secondary schools are failing to provide our society what parents want. Children who grow into responsible, competent, caring adults. The only peaceful and practical solution to the school mess is to fully separate it from the state. People who believe in private enterprise will be among the first to recognize the necessity of returning education to a market system. The quality, quantity, and timeliness of their scholarship, i.e. of your scholarship, your scholarly inquiry into the separation process will greatly influence whether the transition is made prudently or not. Uh, sidebar, one of the things I fear is that we will go through a separation process that is no more wholesome than 
what the Soviet Union is doing in the discarding of Marxism, or the rather the difficult manner in which the United States uh, disposed of the concept of slavery. Now, an unexamined belief. An educator who supports private enterprise in general, of which there have been well over a hundred here, yet fails to call for the replacement of today's government schools, aka public schools, with privately operated and voluntarily funded schools, may need to question a deeply held yet unexamined belief. That belief is that government has a duty to provide, even compel, schooling. I know the belief in government-provided schooling is unexamined by many people because so many admit to me that the idea has never crossed their mind. Would you all like to have a copy of this while this is happening, while real time? Give you something to read while I'm talking. First, as the director of one of the most prestigious prep schools in America wrote me recently, quote, it will seem ironic to you, I'm sure, uh, that someone who has spent his entire professional life in independent education has never seriously considered the implications of separating school and state. Public education, even for those of us in the private sector, is one of those big unexamined assumptions about American life. I despair of any other solution to the present crisis in public education. And he has gone on, by the way, to sign the proclamation for the separation of school and state. And not only is the belief unexamined, but the operating principles for America's government schools is an unholy combination of, brace yourselves, socialism, welfare, and usurpation. I mean no insult. Like Candace, who spoke before me, I believe that the vast, at least I'm inferring this from what you said, Candace, uh, the vast majority of teachers and administrators I've met are talented, dedicated professionals. They are the kind of people that I'd leave the kids with for the weekend. Is that the case of the folks in your school? Good. The people aren't the problem. It's the system, folks. If we could get it down to four words, that's my initial suggestion. It's the system, folks. If you put good people in a bad system, the system will usually win in the short run and always in the long run. How do I justify this bold assertion of socialism, welfare, and usurpation? Well, let's deal with them first at socialism. No less authority than American Federation of Teachers President Alfred Schenker has said the United States public school system more closely resembles the socialism of the Soviet Union than our own free enterprise system. Webster's Ninth New Collegiate Dictionary, so does the Tenth, someone told me the other day, defines socialism as, quote, governmental ownership and administration of the means of production, close quote. And I'm sure that applies to services as well as goods. And we all know that the schools attended by 45 million of uh, America's approximately 51 million school children fit that definition. The schools fit that definition exactly. Welfare. Now this is um, sort of a new idea and, and, and strikes people, uh, uh, it's a little difficult for us. Here we go. With a tax-funded free lunch, free school lunch, for the poor is welfare. Does it remain welfare if it is given to all children? And there's a school district right now that is proposing extending the free lunch concept to all children in the school. This will eliminate the stigma that poor children now feel 
and the uh, harm in their self-esteem of having a free lunch. So, um, as you know, when you take their starting position, that's a reasonable uh, set of logic to extend free lunch to all children. Now the question is, if you gave free, if a school district gave free lunch to all children, does that free lunch now not, not become welfare? Uh, is welfare only when it's means tested? When we say support for the opera is, means, is, is welfare for the rich, is it just a metaphor or is it welfare? I contend it is welfare. It's not a metaphor. If a free lunch for the children is welfare at noon, is there any difference between it and a free math lesson at 10 o'clock? One is food for the mind, the other is, one is food for the body, the other is food for the mind. Now, unlike food stamps, which are welfare without being socialism, and the United States Postal Service, which is socialism without being welfare, I mean, think about it, the government doesn't have, in America, we don't have government farms and government trucks and government grocery stores, you know, to feed the, the poor, we give them, we, we have free enterprise for all of that, and then we give them food stamps, and then they, they go, and in fact, if we really believe in choice, one friend of mine says, we'd be manning the ramparts so that the poor could use their food stamps for hot potatoes at Wendy's and McDonald's, rather than only cold, raw potatoes at Safeway and Piggly Wiggly. But we all recognize down deep, choice ain't the problem. Responsibility is the problem. But I become discursive, been criticized for that. I learned a new word a couple of months ago. Marshall, you're too discursive. So I'll undiscurse. One of the nice things about having a paper, hey Rush, written, uh, <laughs> you undiscurse more. Our welfare without being socialism. And the post office is socialism, the government ownership and operation of the means of transporting letters, without being welfare. Rich and poor alike both pay 32 cents for their first ounce. Right? It's not welfare. I have a right to send a letter to my grandma. <laughs> you know, they don't uh, have free stamps for the poor. America's free, compulsory, and universal, close quote, schooling is an unholy combination of welfare and socialism for all of those who will accept state direction of their children's mind and character. One would think that combining the inefficiency of socialism, it may get something done, it'll just take two to three times as many resources, with the ineffectiveness of welfare, it will not even do what you want it to do. One would think that combining such inefficiency and ineffectiveness would be as bad as can get. Not true. We can make this far worse. Usurpation. Parents object whenever an alternative caretaker, such as a grandparent or babysitter, take it upon themselves to countermand the moral instructions, the parents' moral instructions, to the children. Now, the caretaker agrees to operate in the act in loco parentis. I used to explain that to the kids. Your parents are local. They sent us. You sent you to this school. You know, said, but the caretaker agrees to act in loco parentis, and any attempt of usurpation of the parents' responsibilities for moral instruction can seriously, seriously damage a child. At a minimum, an inconsistency of moral instructions creates confusion about what is right and wrong. Well, Grandma tells me it's okay, right? Well, Daddy said I could. 
said, oh, Mom and Dad better get together and huddle. I mean, you've got to have unity there or you're going to create confusion. Worse, if continued over an extended period and done with the cooperation of the parent, this moral game of cat and mouse can convince a child that right and wrong are unknowable. How does this apply to schooling? All scholarly accounts of the origins of state takeover of schooling in America in the 1830s to the 1890s describe the root motivation was usurpation of parental responsibilities. According to Philip Schlechte, restructuring guru for the state of Kentucky, from the beginning, state schools thought of parents as, quote, the enemy. But in the popular culture, government runs the school so the poor kids get to go. People are incredulous when they first hear that the real reason for state takeover of the schooling, which was open to the public but operated privately for 200 years in America, that the real reason for it was religious intolerance. The supposed Americanization of the Irish was a codename for anti-Catholic bias. Government schools were set up to rescue children from their parents and priests protecting America from popery. This attempted usurpation of the parents' rights did not destroy very many families for the first hundred years because the Catholics quickly smelled the rat and set up their own schools. Over a hundred years, we had two parallel parochial school systems, a tax-funded Protestant parochial school system and a non-tax-supported Catholic parochial school system. I like to say, well, in 1962 and 63, they took Protestant prayers out of the schools, right? And somebody says, what do you mean, Protestant prayers? I said, well, did they take the Hail Marys out of the Catholic schools? Well, no, I guess not. I haven't been to one lately, but uh, I guess they, they still have Hail Marys. I'm told they do, right? Uh, and in fact, they didn't take the Hail Marys out of the public schools, did they? What do you mean? Well, you can't take something out of something that is not there, right? So we should always put the P word. And there were other discussions about what they took prayer, Protestant prayer, out of the public schools, because it highlights now, you're sort of shining the flashlight along the edge, and you can highlight some things and see it. Because what was really going on was uh, this uh, Protestant hegemony of we're going to take your kids and Protestantize them if we possibly can. Others bailed out too who didn't agree with the middle of the road Protestantism. Missouri Synod Lutherans, Christian Reformed, Seventh day Adventist bailed out. The depths of anti-religious animosity are clearly visible I mean, well into the 1920s, for example, when a Ku Klux Klan initiative in Oregon ran that would compel Catholics and others to send their kids into government schools, public schools. That one, that one, that no ch parent would be allowed to send his child to a private school in Oregon. It was fought all the way to the Supreme Court and was found to be unconstitutional in 1926, important case. Uh, Pierce versus the Society of Sisters. However, when the Protestant public school hegemony was broken in the 1960s and the modernists took over the schools, the problem of usurpation escalated. Now the modernists get to use the schools to impede the transmission of values from vast number of traditionalist parents to their children. And I should say as an aside that in Catholic countries, the Catholics don't get off the hook. In a Catholic country, the Catholics, you know, uh, pretty much enjoy taking the club and uh, using it to, uh, uh, to clobber anybody. And uh, in atheist countries, uh, you know, if you look at the Soviet Union, Nazi Germany, and uh, other kinds of places, uh, you know, there's, there's nothing. The atheists don't have anything to brag about. Uh, when they get control, they sure use the club. 
But we live in a Protestantly dominated country, and they're the ones that designed the game in the 1840s, and now they are reaping what they sowed. The deliberate driving of a wedge between parents and children reached its zenith, at least that the public could see, with various clarification in the 1970s and 1980s. A deliberate effort. I mean, it is in the literature. They describe it that way. And it, while it's discredited to some degree now, and it's even semi-recanted by one of its authors, I directed a hard Christian bomb in the five Delta Cap in June 1992. I was giving a presentation at ASCD a few weeks ago, and I said this kind of quickly, and Howard uh, stood up in the audience and said, you oversimplified my point, Marshall. And I regretted I didn't have time to undersimplify it. But read that recantation, particularly read Reason 5, the first four fluffery. But the values clarification, usurpation attitude lives on. Many influential educators and many that aren't influential believe, quote, well, the school board knows best when it comes to deciding which values your children will be taught. So what we end up with is the devil's trinity. I defy anyone to invent a more destructive system for a society to put 88% of its children into than one that adds the inefficiency of socialism to the ineffectiveness of welfare adds to those two the usurpation of parents', parents responsibilities to pass their values on to their children. The solution is clear. Americans must separate their schools from the government. We must end compulsory attendance, compulsory financing, compulsory curriculum, plus government credentialing of teachers and accreditation of schools. For those that say that's a big order, I say if it's right, it's possible. Now that's the first half of this presentation, why it's necessary. The second half of the presentation, how it's possible, I'd love to give, but I think it would be perhaps more appropriate. Uh, Steve, how much time do we have left? We have about uh, eight minutes. Eight minutes. And uh, I was intrigued with many of the things that, uh, that Candace said, and I think it would, uh, the best thing we should do right now is to use that remaining eight minutes for uh, question and answers, if that's okay with, uh, all right. Anybody? Yes, um, Mr. Rosenblum. I wish you were here to, to comment on that. I, I, can't, I can't comment but say, to, to say yes. Of course there's exceptions to everything. And again, I would never generalize to say that 
every public school was bad. I think, I mean, in fact, the end of the paper that I didn't get to is to, to acknowledge the, the fine teaching and the pockets of really good programs that exist probably in every public school. The school, f to, uh, I'll be entering uh, a public school again next year, um, and uh, I'll be entering an a, a international baccalaureate teaching program, and uh, I mean, it's a, it's a great, it's a great program. So I need to get back to public school for because I can't change, um, I can't change any of this. I, but I, I can, I can't make a difference. I, I never thought I'd say that, but I, I can't. But I can make a difference in individual kids' lives. I can, and um, uh, I can uh, be a part of programs that are there, and I can even start some programs. But around me, the rules and things have to be stable. And in public education, there are some things that are stable. And uh, I'll, as I enter it again, I'll have a little bit different attitude. I will not be on so many committees to change things, et cetera. But yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, I answered more than your question. Um, By the way, I think that's not an uncommon attitude among teachers, is that the really quality ones uh, make a decision somewhere along the line, and probably within their first seven years, of either to leave because they're so frustrated that they can't change the system. So one of the, one of the many dirty little secrets of education is how many of the good people leave. Uh, but the other is, uh, the others uh, in the main decide to hunker down and do what they can inside of their classroom and, uh, you know, I got 32 kids and I'm going to uh, pour my heart and soul and mind and, and energy into those kids and uh, uh, I can't, I can't, you know, the problem, the system is intractable as far as they're concerned and it's... And, and, and adding to that, you can, you know, when you look at, you can't do it too much here in the United States because as, as Michael Cox said this morning, the, the free market system just kind of rolls through in spite of all that's happening to, to restrict it and stop it. And, and um, we, don't, we don't live in a system that's like both um, Albania. And um, so we, it's not clear to us how much it's costing us. And we just see all the good things that supposedly government programs do, but we don't see what it's costing us. Uh, we, we just see the benefits. And we're so used to feel, to not seeing what it costs us that, that we look around and say, well, there are some public things that are going on well. There's, this is working well. And I'm sure even in the Soviet Union there before it collapsed, two days before it collapsed, there were teachers there and individual teachers teaching, doing a fine job. There were little um, um, government-managed farm operations where a few core workers were out there just, hey, let's produce more, let's produce more. Sure, because individual folks are out there um, doing what they see is best in their own self-interest at the moment. So. It's like swimming up a waterfall. Occasionally, <laughs> uh, somebody can do it. What a question. One issue might be uh, a lot of private schools, universities are heavily endowed, uh, and so they're not really, they're certainly competing, but they're not like they're depending on that tuition payment uh, uh, as a grocery store would. And I have nothing wrong with that, but that could explain something. I have a great deal wrong with that. I think that the concept of endowment and, and divorcing a school, I've, I've made this argument inside of the private school movement with um, um, private schools that have a very large endowment. It insulates you from the marketplace and your parents, and you're serving uh, the, uh, the trustees of the endowment rather than you serving. And so I, I think it's harmful for you to get uh, too large of an endowment. Uh, you know, raise money for other things, but not for an endowment. You're just uh, and and if you look at the quality of, of some of the older, um, heavily endowed uh, private schools, uh, and I've been at the meetings where the headmasters are talking and everything else like that. So it's open the kimono and share what's really going on. And uh, these guys are. Open kimono. <laughs> well, I don't know. Like 
Did you have something to ask? Well, I think on the, uh, your, your, your comment about how many of you have had to go deal with a teacher. My child goes to a Christmas school. Uh, she's six years old. And when I approach her teacher, I do so with a sense of trepidation. I don't want to offend her and so on. And we have had some, they have a difference. They have a very strong sense of sin at, at her school. It's a Baptist school. And it, our, our theology isn't quite the same. But this is, you know, I don't think we should expect individual teachers to, when you come in and say, well, can I disagree with your view of economics, for them to say, oh, okay, I'm going to change because I don't want to lose you as a, as a customer any more than you would telling Wendy's, I think you ought to have round hamburgers. Oh, well, hell yes, we'll have round hamburgers next time you come in. The main thing is if you don't like the square hamburgers, if you don't like the, the theology, you can go someplace else. They have, my daughter's school has a very strong sense of who they are, just like Wendy's has a strong sense of who they, who they are. I don't think we should expect individual teachers to change the curriculum right. any more at, at a private school than at a public you, school. You don't vote with your dollar, so. So you don't, you don't, you're not taking your, your school. This is, this is the part of my budget that goes for school. That doesn't exist. And what I was trying to say earlier is the attitude permeates all of us so much. And think of school, you think of this is how it is. That we can't even imagine what it would be like. I used to think. That's absolutely. I used right. to think. One, one more comment. I used to think that um, until I talked to a friend this year that 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 the way was going to come through uh, empowerment of teachers, and that the way was going to be uh, we would finally get to decide how it was how it was going to be. And what I realized is, is that when you, when you give up your whole idea of what, what school could be, uh, that it doesn't have to be public, if you can imagine it out there, a whole bunch of folks supplying, suppliers, actually for-profit schools, for-profit schools, imagine it. You know, some of them are probably going to have empowered teachers. Some of them are going to probably have real rigid administration and you're hired to do this and that's the way it is. Just like in a regular real world thing, Teachers love and dream. You mean, you mean some schools might be successful that way, but some won't. I mean, Denny's doesn't focus on empowered cooks? No. That's right. <laughs> they don't. Well, thank you both for an interesting session. Uh, I know that uh, the lunch is a